Welcome to the podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law, a podcast dedicated to discussing special education rights of children with disabilities. I'm your host and special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Now let's talk Sped Law. Hi everyone, special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Sped Law. In this episode, it is my privilege and honor to have Dr. Peter Gerhard, Executive Director of EPIC School in Paramus, New Jersey. EPIC School standing for Educational Partnership for Instructing Children. Dr. Gerhard has over more than 30 years experience in utilizing the principles of applied behavior analysis to further support individuals that present on the autism spectrum in education, employment, in residential, and in community settings. And the title of this uh, show is called Let's Talk Transition. Transition planning into adulthood for post-secondary opportunities in a COVID world. So it's a very timely and informative topic. Um, Dr. Gerhardt has published scores of literature, books, articles, chapters, on the need for adolescent and adult support for children that are on the um, spectrum. He is presented nationally and internationally on this topic. He is one of the founding chairs of the Scientific Council for Aut- Organization for Autism Research. And he also has a book coming out in 2021 specifically about how to best help children to transition into adulthood that are on the spectrum. So let's jump right into this episode, and thanks for listening. Hi everyone, Attorney Jeff Forte, and we are here with another episode of Let's Talk Sped Law. I'm so um, honored and humbled to have with us today um, uh, Dr. Peter Gerhard. Uh, He's the Executive Director at the uh, EPIC School, Educational Partnership for Instruction, Instructing Children in New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Gerhard, so nice to have you. Welcome on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be part of your podcast. Thank you. You know, we're, we're, we're really growing. We're in all 50 states now with our podcast. We're getting a lot of comments that we basically give uh, very complex information in a way that is easy for parents to understand. And today, we have you as a special clinical guest on the show to talk about transition planning. So, you know, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about transition planning into adulthood and post-secondary opportunities for your child that is on an IEP in the apocalyptic COVID world that we're living in, right? Um, First, how are you seeing transition planning uh, changing and evolving because of the the COVID virus right now? Uh, Significantly, at least in implementation. Um, You know, we focus uh, quite a bit of our programming on community-based instruction starting at an early age. Like, you know, one of the things that we, we argue consistently is that Preschool, I mean, adulthood begins in preschool, but don't wait till you're uh, 16 to start saying, oh, now I have to transition plan. You know, you, you really should be transitioning planning from the age of four to say, where are we going with this? Um, but once we had the shutdown 
you know, all of those IEP goals that included shopping, working, um, crossing the street, community safety, um, going out to lunch, they had to stop. Yeah. Um, we are still not back to most of them, except uh, I have two students who this is their last year of eligibility. So they're both back out working and, you know, we check every day the, the positivity rates in New Jersey to make sure that it's you know, relatively safe and we have parental consent to go out and do this because there's some level of risk involved, I guess, by going out at these jobs. So it's changed everything um, about how we implement it. It's changed nothing about how we think about it, um, but it has severely restricted the implementation. And 90% of what we have in a transition IP can't be done via, via virtual instruction. So so let's talk about, um, let, let's kind of baseline what the legal definition of transition planning is, right? So under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, there is a specific mandate that transition um, is to prepare your child for further education, further employment, and independent living after high school. And beginning under the first IEP when your child turns 16, and again, it could be in states, they could provide it earlier than 16, um, but under the federal IDA, it's mandated when your child is um, your first IEP to be in effect when your child turns 16. The team has to start to determine an IEP that's going to include post-secondary goals and objectives that are measurable, that are supported and guided and informed by transition assessments, right? Um, and, you know, all roads lead to adulthood. And, and because of COVID right now, we're having a real reset in what it means to actually prepare a child for further training, education, and uh, post-secondary, uh, um, you know, uh, independent living. So you kind of touched on some things right now. Um, you know, first, you know, are, should we be even planning to have COVID awareness and COVID uh, safety part of a transition plan? Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the things um, we did and we have, uh, our learners tend to be, and if you know, DSM-5, you know, autism two and three. So they're um, also have some significant cognitive challenges. They have some behavior challenges. Every single one of our students wears a mask um, for almost the entire day. Like if they need a mask break, like their teacher goes outside with them for a little bit so they can take off their mask. But um, if you had told me a year ago that I was going to have that as a, as a goal, all of my students wearing surgery, I'd be, I, what are you talking about? Like, But it, it's essential now. It is just a critical skill so that they can go shopping with mom and dad. They can go, you know, just be part of the family. Um, and I have, I have to tell you, I've been so impressed with all of our students at how well um, they are handling their masks. And my colleagues, too. I talked to my colleagues, and they've also been very impressed. I don't know why it's been so successful, but it has been very successful. Right, right. So, 
So for 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 kids that are in, let's say, public school systems, um, that that aren't getting the supports and the rigor and the clinical um, support that your school in New Jersey provides um, in Paramus, New Jersey, Epic School. Um, what I'm hearing is that mask wearing, social distancing, um, COVID awareness should absolutely be a self-care and a social skill goal and objective as a transition program in every child's IEP. Absolutely. And hand washing. Hand washing by CDC rules. You know, not just put your hand on the water for three seconds. You know, right. real hand washing. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you hear it. You know, a lot of kids get sent home by administrators if the child's taking off their mask. When, mm-hmm. in fact, and, you know, saying, well, it's the parent's problem, you know. And while obviously the virus is a very serious thing that we need to think about, it's actually on the schools to be implementing the plan to have a child be appropriately wearing a mask or distancing that child in the school if, if mask wearing is becoming a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's our responsibility. We're the educators. We're the ones who have, uh, theoretically, the knowledge, ability, resources to teach this. Uh, just throwing it off to parents is, is an abandonment of responsibility. Right, right. So a- as an expert in, in transition planning, right, you know, oftentimes parents, they're going to IEP meetings and they're not even aware that they can actually get a comprehensive transition evaluation done, right? Uh, for, for the parents that are listening, it'll it'll often go. The vernacular will often be something like, "Well, you know, we can conduct some informal evaluations and some informal tests to see what your son or daughter might be interested in doing after after high school." What what is a formal comprehensive transition assessment look like? You know, what what are the parts of it? What are the functions of it? Um, how can a parent be more fully informed to actually be requesting a transition evaluation to more fully inform their child's IEP? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different aspects to it. And one of the things that I, I think is important for parents to also know, first of all, is that a tra- transition assessment should be different as a function of where you live. So a transition assessment in New York City should be very different from a transition assessment in rural Idaho. You know, there are different skill sets related to adulthood that you're gonna need to look at. So you have to keep that in mind at all times. Um, There are a couple of decent transition assessment instruments out there. There's um, the TTAP and there's the FISH. I like to do the uh, adaptive behavior assessment just to get an overall sense of where the person is. Um, it's it, it's very helpful for me to know that, but excuse me, but the, the like the vinelet is not sensitive enough to show a lot of change, so it doesn't change much over time. When you put the uh, entirety of, of human existence into 13 steps, it's kind of hard sometimes to jump across steps. Um, but then we also recommend um, doing some in vivo stuff. Uh, getting out there and giving kids opportunity to try things. I think if you ask most 
typical kids at 16, what do you want to do with your life? They would say, I don't know. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. Yeah. Or they may have some, you know, I want to be, I want to be a rap star. I want to be like, you know, but they have the ability to know what's out there just by seeing it and seeing other people. Like the people, people with autism aren't really good at visualizing things they've never experienced. So the paper and pencil assessments that say, do you like, do you want to work in a place like this? Do you want to work in a place like this? I don't think provide us with a whole lot of useful information until we go out and confirm that what he or she said is accurate. Right, right. You know, it's, it, it, it's, this is such a key takeaway because oftentimes you'll see a goal and objective that'll say something like, you know, Johnny will identify two interests to pursue after high school. And that's the whole goal for the entire year. <laughs> and yep. you, you can do that in like two seconds, right? Yep. Um, so what you're talking about with both formal assessments like the AFLs and um, the adaptive behavior assessment mm -hmm. and um, the, the, uh, the assessment of basic uh, language and learning and the violin, those are all great, but you actually have to put the child in the context in the community setting of which they're going to, uh, you know, live after they've finished their IEP tenure through the IDA. Right, right. I would add, by the way, Essentials for Living to that assessment battery. It's a, it's a great instrument, a little complex, but a great instrument. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you have to keep asking yourself, like, are they going to do this after they graduate? You know, and if it's the answer is no, why are you still working on it? Like, think of the things that they're going to need to do after they graduate and focus on those skills. Right. That's that's the goal so that they can access further education. They can access further employment. They can access all of these things. Um, that's why we focus so much on the community. Right. Right. And the community because when they graduate, they're never going to be in this classroom again. Right. The community setting is so key. I mean, and what community setting may be for one child is different from what a community setting may be for another. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, we often use the words interchangeably, but is there a difference between life skills, life, life skill goals and objectives, versus adaptive skill goals and objectives? Are, are there differences? And, and, should parents be aware of what those differences are? Um, yeah, there are differences. Um, you know, um, I decided, I guess, like two years ago, like I've dropped the term functional skills out of my, my repertoire, um, primarily because most of them aren't functional and it just describes an aspect of the skill, not whether or not somebody uses it. Um, we instead use applied skills. Like, is this a skill that the person actually uses? Mm -hmm. um, and most of them, many of them cross over into what were labeled functional skills or ADAs, activities of daily living, or you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but these are, are those things that give you the most bang for your buck. Um, the, oh, I cannot remember her name right now. She wrote The Happiness Project. Um, and it's like, uh, what whatever you do most frequently is what matters most. Mm. So, you know, 
one of the really important skills I have is I know how to make coffee in the morning. <laughs> right, right. You know, now, is it a little thing? What? I, yeah, but does it give me a better start to the day? Absolutely. Um, we talk about, extensively talk about such things as dressing, bathing, um, toileting as safety skills. Because if you're independent, all those skills, no paid person ever has to be in that room with you again for the rest of your life. And 99.99% of paid people in this field are great. But if you want to program great, you're programming for that 001. You know, they're not life skills, they're safety skills, really. Right. So, and then when you think of them that way, they take on a whole new urgency for why you have to do this correctly. So, so when we're talking about functional skills, um, uh, you know, such as self, you know, self-care, you know, bathing, uh, eating, dressing, toileting, uh, grooming, hygiene. Have you ever, have you ever had parents come to you and they say, well, our school team said because those aren't academic uh, uh, goals and objectives that we're not, we're not obligated to train your or teach your child that there must be problems in the home if they don't know how to do those things. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excuse me. Not, not recently, but like I work right now in kind of a rarefied environment. I have a, I have this little school. Um, and plus quite honestly, people know me. Like I get to be Peter Gerhardt. Right. And they know, they know <laughs> what my focus is. So they often don't fight as much as they would with somebody else. They just right. go, oh, okay. So, but it's, it's still out there that this headset of that's not our responsibility. Yeah. Um, and then when they do decide to teach it, they teach it like once a week. So they work on, on combing hair once a week, which in a typical school that gives you 40 trials of combing hair, which means you never really learn to comb your hair. Right. You right. know, it just doesn't work out. For any skill, we need sufficient practice to acquire it. I don't care what the skill is or whether you're typical or not typical. Right. You know, I was at a I was at an IEP meeting here in Connecticut. Um, well, this was before COVID. So I, I was there doing a student observation uh, about a year ago for a child on the spectrum that was nonverbal. And one of the goals and objectives for transition was learning a vocational skill. <laughs> and I go to, it, it was silent. It did not specifically state what the vocational skill was. And I go in and the, the child for a couple hours was simply given a stack of paper to shred. Mm -hmm. And that shredding was the vocational skill. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's egregious to me that just having a child be shredding paper satisfied this child's goals and objectives for transition planning, but for if I didn't go and observe what the transition goal was. Right. right. Yeah, no, it, it's really common. And oftentimes the things that we define as vocational goals have really no relationship to what they would do on a job anyway. Right. Um, they end up being more... Um, busy work than not. Now, having said that, like we do have some stuff that I think to the to the casual observer look like busy work, but they're not because we're looking at endurance and rate. Like we want he or she to be able to work for an hour and forty five minutes straight and mm -hmm. produce at a rate that is acceptable to employers. Right. You know, so 
those are the skills that are in our IEPs. Not that they will assemble 40 widgets, you know. It will be engaged in, in this task for an hour, 45 minutes, um, and during that time produce an acceptable number or a commensurate num number to what a typical worker would do. Right. And, you know, you bring up a good point there, Doc, because what often will happen is a child's transition goals and objectives will be met and satisfied within the, you know, within the public school setting. But then if you go and actually have the student do it in a different setting, it's not generalizing the, the goal and the, 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 the skill set isn't generalizing so the muscle memory and the routine is being able to be implemented across multiple domains. And, and, and you know, that's where, that's where you and your school come in, it sounds like, much more than what a pu pu public school is going to do. Oh, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I go to places and, I'm, I'm, you know, and I, they have like a beautiful setup, it looks like, you know, they have like, a, <laughs> yeah, like they right. actually have like, like a little 7-Eleven in their thing. And they have like, and I keep saying, why don't you just go to a 7-Eleven? Like, why do you have to have like this one here? And, you know, we know, you know, most kids on the spectrum don't generalize well. It's like we knew that going back to 1976. You know, it's not a new thing. Right. You know, so I learned early on, like, teach with the skills most likely to be displayed. And even simple things, like, uh, for years I argued against teaching coins and dollars if it's taking you a long time and just going right to a debit card, having them pay, you know, because purchasing is the, is the use of money, so just get the payment going thing. Now we're on to Apple Pay. Now we're on to... You know, there are three different point-of-sale systems. One, you don't need to put your pin in. One, you do. And so we have to teach all of those right. combinations, which I can't teach sitting at a desk across from the students. Right. You, know, you, you, you only bring do up, that in the real world. You, you bring up such a great point. Right. Like, why reinvent the wheel? Right. Why, yeah. why try to replicate the world in a, in a shell when, in fact, we should be going out into the community with transition programs to actually really do it in in the in the setting in which the the students going to be entering into it's exactly right but i mean that's the that's the goal so and also by doing that you're educating the community you know the community gets to meet your students and they get to know them by name and so when they come into that starbucks again they know who they are you know and it's one of our major transition goals is that the community knows our students by names not as that student with autism at the epic school. Right. You know, I want them to know Tommy. I want them to know Brian. I want them, like, that's the, because that's when they're part of the community. Right. You know, it, it really underscores the, the, uh, the statement, you know, it takes a village, right? It does. Yeah. And, and you, you, you know, you just, you give such great insight here to our parents that you want this, the, the community to be accepting and aware and acknowledging the student just as much as the student needs to go into the community as well. And um, when, when you have that dual dynamicness where it's both community awareness and student awareness with transitioning, um, it really it really means something. It really does. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think it is the last major barrier in 
the inclusion of people with neurological challenges is the typical community, is educating the typical community to like, you know, yes, he has autism, but you know what? He's a really cool kid. And he's got a great sense of humor. And he can sing Cat Stevens songs. Like, and like, yeah. it's all of these positive traits that all of my students have, all everybody who I've ever met has, you know, to get them to see that aspect. So, and that they can talk to him. Like, I know so many the cashiers who always think that they should talk to mom and dad and not to the, the kid with autism or talk to the teacher. And we're always like, he's buying it. I'm not buying it. Talk to him. And once I give him permission to do that, because they think they can't. They don't, you know, it, oh, it's a specialized thing. So, right. you know, now all of a sudden we go in and that cashier waves us over because she's open because she wants to see Tommy. Right. You know, and that's how it works. You know, you, you so you have over 30 years experience in applying ABA support to individuals on the spectrum in multiple domains, education, employment, residential, community-based. I have practically all your books on my desk, right? I mean, you know, so, so when you go to an IEP meeting and you're talking transition planning, I mean, y- you command the presence of the team, no doubt. Um, but for the parents that don't have that, that weight, Right, um, especially now during COVID, what what are some you know like what are the, the top three to five items that are you know non negotiables that we should be advocating and informing parents about in, um, in in the world we live in as far as you know transition planning goes. Uh, that's a great question. Um, what is what I already said? I think that the whole independence in terms of bathrooming, all that sort of stuff, there's your safety skills, you know, but also generalize it across different bathrooms, not just that one bathroom in your classroom. Go out in the community and learn to use the bathroom at McDonald's. Go out in the community and learn to use the bathroom at Target. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, I think we have signs all over our building um, that say independence is more important than perfection. You know, and as a behavior analyst, I think sometimes we get stuck on the fact that he's at 87.8% accuracy on this step. So we can't right. move him on until he gets to 90%. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, just like, you know what? If he does his laundry and one time only puts in one Tide Pod instead of two, he still did his laundry. You know, but we focus so much that it has to be 100% every time. So independence is more important. Um than anything else. I think every kid should learn how to use a smartphone. I think it's the greatest safety device that exists right now. Um, and I don't care if I don't care if the individual is nonverbal. Right. Um, there are plenty of ways you can communicate with a smartphone. So that should be. Um, in terms of employment related, um, it's this endurance and rate, but also the social, the little social things what we call the soft skills, you know, greeting someone. Um, you know, we we spent years teaching kids to shake hands, and now they can't shake hands. Which kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But even like, if you if you have somebody who's non vocal, and an employer says hi to them, all they have to do is just turn and nod their head, and they've completed the interaction, and the employer feels really good. You know, um, if if they don't have that skill, so there's a lot of little things that I think get included. Um, and I think the last one um, is gotta be self-advocacy. 
um, in whatever way the individual communicates, how do they tell me what they want? How do they tell me what they need? How do they tell me what they don't need? Um, that's the, at the heart of everything, I think, is that being able to do that. Um, and, you know, part of self-advocacy is also accepting no. Like, you have to, there are times where, you know, it can't be done. Um, but, and every student that I've ever worked with, I don't care where they're on the spectrum, can advocate. You know, that student who has a history of aggression who keeps punching me is telling me, why don't you understand this? Right. I've punched you 90 times now and you still haven't figured it out. What is your problem? Right. You know, right. that's advocacy. I just have to switch it into another form of communication. What What are you seeing right now, given the, the state that we're in with COVID, with employment opportunities, with vocational uh, opportunities within the within communities. I mean, how how are we getting our students to an employability aspect, um, given given where we are right now with with the virus? You know, the, the the employability part is is I think well, right now it's it's not accessible from in most cases. Yeah. Um, but it will be again. I think I have no doubt that that will come back once. Uh, there's a vaccine and this is much more under control. Um, employment is going to be a different thing though, because we have so many Americans right now who are unemployed. Um, and unfortunately that puts us in a competition and there's still people out there who look at, well, this person has autism, this person doesn't, I'm going to give it to the person who doesn't because the person with autism gets social security and has a support person. And, um, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that's what we're going against. Yeah. Plus, in states where they've now raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, um, and many states have taken away our ability to um, pay sub-minimum wage, and there's a good reason to do that. But I used to be able to talk to an employer and say, you know what, fifteen dollars is minimum wage, but I, he works at two-thirds the rate of your typical worker. You know, pay him ten dollars an hour, and you're getting the same bang for your buck. He's getting paid. So I think the $15 minimum wage, although I think it's very good for America and good for the economy, it's going to make our jobs tougher in the long run. Right, right. So so it's it's it's, it's not that positive a news right now that, you know, number one, we're not getting um, we're not getting our, our kids employed right away because because of shutdowns. Um and and when we do actually get somewhat back to normalcy a little bit, there's going to be this this more of a competitive landscape because of the unemployment rate right now. Boy, that's that that yeah. that's challenging. That's tough. It, it is tough, but I also think, and for parents and professionals alike, um, we need to start focusing on skills and abilities and positives of the kids and young adults that we work with. Um, you know, we, and I, and I understand that. I was brought up in the field, you know, a long time ago and, um, IEPs are sort of deficit models, you know, like they don't have this skill. So we need to teach this skill. Um, but you know, typical people don't have that, that to deal with. Nobody ever says like Peter Gerhardt, he's a good guy, but he can't speak Russian. Like, nobody ever talks about what I can't do. Right. They only talk about what I can do. 
But if you have autism, there's always this part of like, well, you know, he really can't do this, or he doesn't like that, or like, tell me what he can do. Tell me what he likes. You know, and let's let's build upon that. Um, and then we have to build better connections with the community. We have to build better connections with employers. Um, one of the nice things about you know Connecticut and New Jersey and New York is that most people here know autism. Mm-hmm. So if my staff are out with, with a student and he is a little bit upset, people don't care. They just go, oh, maybe he has autism, and they walk by. You know, it's not like it was 20 years ago where people would stop and stare and see what was going on. And, and you know, it's become a much more accepting environment, which is phenomenal. Right. Um, and that's, I think, one of the places that as a country we need to get to. Absolutely. Um, yeah, especially for people... Um, you know, there's the, the Americans with, with Disability um, Act has been great for people who have physical disabilities, physical challenges, hasn't done much for people who have neurological challenges. That's the next big frontier. Right, right. Um, but I would also tell all, all of your podcast listeners to see the movie Crip Camp if they haven't. What's that movie? Yeah. Crip Camp. Crip Camp, okay. Watch it. It's on Netflix. Awesome. It's about the, the, the development of the disability rights uh, movement in America. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, it's a it's, really a, awesome. it's a must see. Um, yeah, you know, I, I had another question for you, and it's something that um, you know, well, well, we know each other through through my wife Salandi Forte, who's a who's a fellow BCBA, and um, mm-hmm. you know, she's often presented to um, first responders, to police departments, to fire departments, to firemen about how to pick up on um, situations where they may potentially be called um, and the person that is either being called about or involved in is is someone that is on the spectrum and how important it is to have skills around how to deal with you know the the, the police department and first responders but also for those uh, those town and, and municipal agencies to also be educated on de-escalating rather than escalating an issue. Um, and how, how how have you you know during your experiences how how do you teach those those skill sets and um, you know present to present to police departments present to fire departments on how to handle issues involving a, a child that's on the spectrum. Well, um, I'll tell you one thing we're, we're doing. It's um, paused right now, again, because of COVID. Um, but we have a, a Next for Autism grant, and we're working with um, Englewood Hospital in Englewood, New Jersey, with their EMS department um, to do a, a training video curriculum online um, for EMTs. Mm. Um, and the script is written by somebody on the spectrum. Uh, everybody who's in it is on the spectrum. You know, it's not it's not some professional standing there and telling you X, Y, and Z. Right. You know, it's from from their point of view. Um, it it goes across the spectrum so that there are individuals who have um, significant challenges, and that individual has a college degree, but is still on the spectrum. Um, so we talk about all of those things. Um, every um, police officer, officer, um, you know. EMT, physician, you name it, that I've met, wants to learn. They want to do right. Yeah. You know, they, totally. they, they crave that information. Um, 
you know, we work with our parents to, we call them positive police profiles. Um, so you, you write up like a, just a one page sheet about your son or your daughter with like their name, their address, their phone number, positive stuff about them, what they like. You know, now if there's some specific things that do tick them off, you can put that in there. And then you bring it down uh, to your local police station and you make sure that everybody there gets a copy and you can even like go to a roll call and like do a little bit of a training. Brilliant. For everybody. But then we say, you got to go back every year. Right. Because there's going to be new officers. Yeah. People forget. If you haven't run into your son over the course of the year, they're going to forget. Um, there's a new picture of your son that you want to include on that now so they will recognize him. Um, eventually, you should bring your son in so they can actually meet him. Right. You know, because, it's again, it's that that's going to make the difference. Um, Positive police profile. Su- such great. And it goes to what you were just saying earlier in the show. Getting to know the community in which your child will be part of and and getting them you know interwoven into the cloth of the community is such a key takeaway it's it's so helpful for our listeners doctor it really is yeah no i think i think that's the bottom line of transition planning yeah, you know? yeah. so we want them to be a, an integrated part of his or her community right right um well, so what what would you say, because we're in COVID right now, um, and there aren't the opportunities that we had pre-COVID, um, how should we be adapting our our kids? How should we be pivoting? And obviously, we you know, six feet distance, non-handshaking, you know, washing hands, all that. But for employability purposes, for actual, um, you know, practical... Um, uh, rollouts of, of programs. What should families be thinking about now uh, to get their child employment ready, to get their child vocational ready because we have all these roadblocks right now because of the virus? Yeah, well, you know, you were t- talking about like public schools. One of the things that I've always liked about public schools is there are often a lot of job opportunities right in the building. Um, you don't have to look all that far. So you were talking about the individual who shredded paper. Well, then have them go down to the office and actually shred paper that's supposed to be shredded, not just make work stuff and have them be part of that environment every day for half an hour or whatever it is. Um, Look around for those opportunities um, for the individual to actually have um, an actual work experience, not just some like a job training um, component. Because public schools have a lot of those to offer, um, and they usually, you know, they're, they're, they're educators or they're administrators, like they all, they wanna do good stuff. Right. You know, sometimes the systems don't allow us, but by and large, we all wanna do good stuff. Um, look at stuff, like they said, increase endurance and increase rate. Um, do like, Find out what he or she likes, you know, like spend some time, you know, we don't, uh, Denny Reed, who's, uh, one of my heroes and has become a friend. Um, he's published seven articles with happiness as an outcome variable. Mm. Um, and I always ask when I do talks, like how many people here today ever wrote an IP goal with happiness as an outcome variable? And it's zero. Right. You know, and we can do this. You know, we can actually like help figure out what makes him happy and then incorporate that in his or her life. You know, and we all have quirky stuff that makes us happy. So I'm really not worried if what makes him happy 
is something that's a little atypical or a little quirky as long as it really makes them happy. Right, right. You know, then that's something that I think they should all be looking at now, especially now right. when everybody's so stressed, when everybody's so isolated. You know, we yeah. found out that one of our old students at, when I was back at Rutgers loved old movie musicals on in the background. Like, he was so happy if, like, Carousel was... He didn't turn around and watch it. He just wanted it on in the background. Right. right. You know, but a movie that wasn't a musical didn't work. So what what you're really talking about is uh, often referred to as, you know, person-centered planning, right? Yes. Uh, Person-centered planning where you're, you're, you're focusing on the individual student and bringing all the stakeholders together to focus on that student's personal vision for what they want to do in the future. And, right. you know, it, it kind of, you know, I mean, I'm probably a bit jaded, obviously, because I kind of see all the bad examples, you know, in my practice. But um, it really is a significant journey to, to figure out person-centered planning. And we're not talking about, you know, like, you know, guardian ad litem, um, you know, you know, trust holder, estate type of work. We're actually talking about how do we make this person focused and participants into the community setting so they can start to take some control over their their life as a productive member within the community, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I often talk about um, just how tough it really must be to be a person on the spectrum in school because every time you master an IEP goal, we give you another freaking goal. And you rarely <laughs> then get to really use the skill that we just taught you. It just goes into this maintenance list yeah. and we say it's mastered. So it's this never ending. Like find those things that actually, when mastered, become part of his repertoire or right. become part of her repertoire. Like those are the things that, that matter most in life. Now, yes, there are things that we really should teach that may not bring a whole lot of joy. Like, I don't think wiping after a bowel movement brings a whole lot of joy to people's lives, but it's a critical skill. Right. Um, so not everything fits into that puzzle, but at the same time, uh, we want him to feel, he, he, we want he or she to feel competent in their life, that they can do this. Not every time they do something wrong, they get corrected. Right. That would drive me crazy if I was on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you have you've authored so many books and articles over the last thirty years. Um, you know, like I said, many of them are on my bookshelf. D- do you have, to the extent you can share, do you have any new books coming out anytime soon that that we should be aware about or articles? Um, I have a an edited book that's coming out probably late twenty twenty one. That's on. Um, Programming for quality of life for individuals with autism spectrum disorders. Um, Springer, um, we've lined up 27 different authors and different areas of expertise to write about um, what the research says and how to do this in a very practical way. You know, because there's often this difference between research, because you do research in a way to get published, and what we do day to day in the classroom and in the community. Right. So right. I'm very excited to be part of that. That that process. is oh I, I'm gonna. I'm going to have to get a pre-order copy of that. Just, <laughs> can you name the title again of the book for us? Um, autism, adults with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Quality of Life. 
Great, and that's that's coming out uh, in just a couple months because we're going to... Right, end of, end of next year. End of next okay. year, okay. Yeah. Great, great. Well, Dr. Gerhardt, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, it's my honor to have you on. Um, we can talk so much more about transition planning for for yeah. children on the spectrum. Um, I feel like we 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 have just you know kind of just started the conversation on this on this podcast, and we're going to have to absolutely have you back on the show, um, perhaps when your book is ready, or even beforehand when we kind of get and we turn the tide, and w- with with the virus, and we now are are in a position more to right. to have our students. Um, be, be going out into the workforce again. So, yeah, that, that would be great. I would love to do it, but you have to start calling me Peter. That's all. <laughs> I will. Absolutely, Peter. Well, okay, thank, thank, you. thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners on, a, on, on Let's Talk Sped Law. Be sure to, to follow us on Facebook as we have uh, new episodes coming out every week. Thank you so much.